Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Friends, I hope you're doing good today. Thank you so much for listening and for being patient this week. I finally got over that tinge in my hands so and I can get back to concentrating on telling stories. I guess if I had about two bits worth of sense, I'd go ahead and get surgery done on my shoulder to get it over with. But like the doctor said, it might work, which to me means might not work. So I think I'll put it off a little bit longer. What do you think? Anyway, there are a few things in life that shock me anymore. Part of the reason for that is the fact that I read history and have grown up with it my entire life. The other thing is the uncan- my uncanny ability to be standing mere feet from something tragic right near the or about the time it happened. For example, I was standing no more than 70 feet from North Hall while the mass shooting at Virginia Tech was actually taking place. And I'll have to put an episode together on that one in the future and explain exactly how I wound up in the middle of that one. But there was another time back in January of 25th of 2000 when me and a friend of mine got the idea that since it had been cold for a spell that we were going to go down to the river near a little community in my home county called Parrot and try out a couple of musky fishing lures that we'd found and ordered from an outdoor magazine. Now, those lures were guaranteed to slay the muskie, who supposedly just couldn't resist them. And we read in the same magazine that the muskie fishing was best done in the cold, which we had plenty of at the time. We stood there on the riverbank for a couple hours, whipping the water to a froth from repeated casting. The only thing we managed to do was drink an eight-pack of stubby old Milwaukee's mixed with spicy red-hot V8 juice, which is an Appalachian delicacy known as a red-eye. Once we remembered that we had to go to work the next day, we figured that we'd better head on in and figure out why we didn't get so much as a nibble on those musky slaying crankbaits. We didn't know at the time, but we weren't in deep enough water. You know, they wouldn't work in shallower water. But we had about half a moon worth of light and all we could do to keep from hooking each other in the head anyway. So we packed it on up and headed home. Now, that might not sound like it's a big deal, and to us at the time it wasn't, but sit on down there for a spell and let me tell you what happened next. Tara Rose Muncie was born on February 2nd of 1983. She lived in Radford, Virginia, 
which is right up the river from where we tested out our musky lures. From all that I heard about her, she, she had herself together pretty well for a high school sophomore. She'd been dating a young man named Nick, and there's no need to put his last name out there at this point, and we'll leave it at that. But anyway, Nick was in the Navy and was stationed in Illinois at the time, probably up at Great Lakes, if I had to guess. They had what's called a fast and furious relationship, according to Tara's dad, Bill. That meant that they'd met, falling hard for each other, and then maybe everything didn't go quite smooth and had a few hitches in their get-along, but you know, if you know what I mean, but uh, they stayed solid through it all and had plans to get married. But unfortunately, there were things afoot that nobody saw coming that were about to change everything and leave folks around my home stunned and hurt and, by golly, downright pissed off. On January 25th, 2000, Tara finished her shift at the Farallone Taco Bell around 7.30 in the evening. She did what she normally did, which was grab her a bite to eat and carried it out in the bag, but she never made it home. And it was unlike her to not check in with her parents. She was supposed to meet her father and brother to go to a basketball game. It just so happens that her dad passed by the Taco Bell and saw a car still sitting there while on the way to the game where he was supposed to meet her. He thought that it was odd, so he stopped in and asked if she had to work late or something. He was thinking at that point that he hated that she would miss the ball game. After they told him that she had clocked out about 30 minutes earlier, he started getting a little bit worried. And after worrying for a spell, Tara's mom and dad both called the police, but the police didn't take him seriously at first. And that's no reflection on the Pulaski County Sheriff's Office because I know most of them boys there and I know uh, there must have been some reason for it. What it is never made public. Anyway, they said Tara would probably be home in a few hours. By the next day, she was still missing. Her car was still sitting at the Taco Bell parking lot and unlocked. Tara's work hat and food she took with her were laying on the front seat, but her keys and purse were missing. That wasn't the first time somebody in that area had gone missing. Back in 1980, university student Gina Renee Hall went missing. And that's another episode I need to get to because it's taken more twists and turns than most people know about. My very own cousin was an investigator on that case. As with all cases, the rumor mill started cranking out a belief that Tara had run away to be with her boyfriend Nick over in Illinois. I remember swinging by my dad's house for after work the next day for a cup of his famous percolated coffee and watching that story on the news. It looked to me like the rumor mill didn't just make it up out of nowhere, just pull it out of thin air, you know. The police, in fact, thought that it was a real possibility that Tara had went to Illinois to be with Nick. They acted like pretty confident, I guess, that uh, they were going to find her there. But when the police spoke to Nick, he said that he hadn't even heard from her in a few days. And the police also spoke to his commanding officer, and he said that he'd been on the base the whole time. And that's the way it is when you're training. They pretty much ride you around like a swayback nag so they know exactly where you are the next time they're ready to deal out more chastisement. Something else inter- interested the police. One of Tara's co-workers told him that Tara had worked the drive through the day she disappeared and had gotten into an argument with two males. The police found out right after that that there was no way to see the argument or where Tara had went 
after she got off because Taco Bell didn't have any video cameras. Now, I remember that raising a big stink in the news, too. And needless to say, they got video cameras now. By the next day, hundreds of searchers came out in the freezing cold, and by now it was snowing to look for. I remember having a job where I traveled around the backwoods a whole lot, so I was keeping my eyes peeled, too. Days soon turned into weeks, and that was until February 10th when some folks, uh, I never got a clear information as to exactly who, found a body in a 70-foot ravine just seven miles from Tara's house. That would be the very ravine right above the spot where we'd tried out our musky lures on the very night Tara went missing. Now, the body was soon identified as Tara. It wasn't very hard to do because she had her ID in her back pocket. She was found naked from the waist up. She had been shot four times. I mean, I'm sorry, make that three times. And she had injuries consistent with being thrown down a ravine after she had been murdered. Tara's body was in near perfect condition because of the freezing temperatures and that it was covered with a thin layer of snow. The crime scene was tough to search because the upper part of the ravine was an illegal dump site where people, you know, throw out things like broken TVs, old stoves, refrigerators, and stuff like that. Eventually, the police did find a 22 caliber shell casing. Tara's keys and a cigarette was found. The filter on the cigarette had been torn off and, you know, off the cigarette butt, which was a very interesting find. Now, Tara's shirt was also found on the front of its on the front of it was an imprint of an athletic shoe so somebody had actually planted their foot square right in the middle of Tara's chest at one point so Tara's autopsy was performed in Roanoke at what we call the big coroner's office there's nothing odd about that because that office was the most modern and up-to-date lab in southwest Virginia and still is today and is still used today the results showed that Tara had been shot once in the chest and twice in the face, all at close range. Tara had blood under her fingernails, showing that she had fought with her killer. A rape kit was performed, which came back negative, but there was semen found on Tara's body, which was taken for DNA testing. Shell casing was also tested. The gun that fired it was, had very unique markings on it, or left very unique markings on it. So the forensic scientists found that the gun was either a Revolution Marlin or a Sears gun, which was also made by Marlin at the time. After Tara's body was found, her friends told the police that on the day Tara disappeared, they'd all got together and smoked a little weed after school. Now, there's nothing odd about that so far. Well, that was until they said that an older man named Jeff Thomas had been there and he'd been the one that supplied the weed. Now... Jeff was a piece of work. He was about like a train running around looking for a place to happen and have a wreck. He knew Tara because she babysat his six-year-old daughter, and Jeff was none other than one of the boyfriends of Nick's mother. Now, Jeff was 30 years old, unemployed, and lived in and out of a, another girlfriend's basement, and he liked to hang out with young teenagers, particularly girls. The scumbag also had a criminal history, he had spent two years in prison for attacking a neighbor with a baseball bat, which apparently didn't do him a bit of good. The police immediately dragged him in to answer a few questions. The deviant said that he had an alibi for the night that Tara was murdered. He'd been over to his good friend Kevin Williams' house. 
they asked if he owned a 22 caliber firearm, and he said no, but uh, then proceeded to throw his good friend Kevin Williams under the bus by telling them that he sure as heck did. So police got to go to Kevin and march him back to the station for a few questions. Then they escorted him back over to his house, hoping to have a look at that 22 in question. Kevin told him that Jeff had his gun, and Kevin told the police that they could look in his backyard because he had used the shot the gun back there for target practice. Sure enough, the police found two shell casings. They matched the ones found at Tara's crime scene, so somebody was lying. And to top it off, Kevin told police that Jeff never came by his house on the night of the murder. Now, police couldn't be sure exactly where Jeff spent the night, and but they figured uh, it's more likely him doing something than the other feller, so they started focusing on him as the killer. That's about the time a witness named Barbara came forward, and I'll hold her on to her last name because the poor woman caught enough hell through the years for trying to help somebody that just couldn't be helped. Now, Barbara got pulled over for a traffic violation. If I remember right, it was for performing what's known around the area as a West Virginia rolling stop. Yes, she didn't come to a complete stop. Barbara might have had just a pinch of weed in a baggie sitting on her console, too. That's still unclear, but uh, I actually heard that through a grapevine. But she said she knew Jeff, and he had actually been staying in her basement at the time of the murder. She said on the night Tara was killed, Jeff came up home muddy and with onions all worked up over something. And Barbara asked him what in the world was wrong with him. Jeff told her that he'd really effed up this time. So Barbara got escorted to the station to answer a few more questions. She said that Jeff told her that Tara wouldn't have sex with him, and it made him mad, so he had shot her three times execution style. He then told her that he wasn't above doing it again if word got out about it. Now the questions did fly around as to why Barbara didn't say something sooner. She said that she was afraid that if she did, that she'd be the next one. So knowing both of them like I did, I believe her. The number of times that Tara was shot was never really released public to the public, but I just happened to have heard it from a little birdie that she was indeed shot three times. Now, the next thing that police did was type up a search warrant for Jeff's car and proceed to go over it like they'd lost something in it. In the trunk, they found a pair of sneakers. A forensic scientist compared the sneakers to the pictures in the, of the footprint in Tara's shirt and determined that the shoes could have made the print. Three strands of blonde hair with the roots still attached were also found in Jeff's car. The hairs were tested against Tara's DNA and it was a match. And once the main card was removed, the whole house of cards kept falling because his DNA was found on Tara's body, clothes, shoe, and under her nails, and on the cigarette butt at the crime scene. It was about time that one of the investigators remembered that Jeff smoked a cigarette during the questioning, and he broke the filter off his cigarette before he smoked it. Needless to say, it ain't looking good for Jeff, who was arrested and put into jail for safekeeping, until a trial could be scheduled. And I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. Folks, what exactly happened based on the evidence was presented by the prosecutors and police? 
They believe that Jeff waited in the parking lot for Tara to leave work where he asked her to go smoke weed with him again, and they left together. Jeff made sexual advances toward Tara, and she fought back, which pissed him off. He, she then, him and her both then scuffled, and he ended up shooting her and pushing her down a ravine. The murder weapon was never recovered, but in March of 2001, Jeff was found guilty of capital murder, and he was sentenced to death. Even though Tara's mom, Kitty, opposed the sentence, she said the loss of Tara was terrible, but we didn't want to see another person die, and we don't wish to see Jeff die, On using Tara's name to justify it. So, in 2002, the Virginia Supreme Court gave Jeff Thomas a sentence of life without parole. Somehow, his verdict got overturned, and the Pulaski County prosecutor, Mike Fleener, who is a really good man, offered a plea deal to spare the family another trial. Jeff Thomas pounced all over it, agreeing to a life sentence without the possibility of parole, and that was good enough for Tara's mom and dad. Bill and Kitty, who'd been divorced at the time of Tara's passing, were remarried after the tragedy. Sometimes something like that makes folks rethink everything in their lives, and maybe their differences ain't much different after all. Unfortunately, Kitty passed away in June 21, 2006, after a long, brave battle with cancer. God bless her. The piece of dog squeeze, named Jeff Thomas, didn't have much going for him to begin with and wasn't doing anything to help himself whatsoever. He spent time losing jobs and hanging out with teenagers. Tara caught his eye just because she was nice to him and had babysat his daughter. Jeff tried to take advantage of her and she lost uh, her life because you know, he, she just simply said no and fought for her life. I myself feel just awful for Tara's family and Jeff deserves every second of the life without parole that he made for himself. He currently sits in the Keene Mountain Correctional Facility eating bologna sandwiches and staring out the bar-covered windows waiting for his end to come and by golly it'll be coming there. He won't be going anywhere. Hope you got something out of our story today. It's another one that had to be told. If you have, please rate and review the podcast. Please join us on Facebook group Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast where we can discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. And I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend, and I'll see you then.